Hello, you're listening to the Inclusive Innovators podcast, a brand new series recorded entirely in lockdown. This series is part of the East London Inclusive Enterprise Zone, aka Elise, powered by UCL. Elise is an accessible, specially designed community for entrepreneurs who are disabled or whose work focuses on accessibility. This series is packed full of change makers, innovators, and partners all of them connected to Elise. Built on the Paralympic legacy, we're working with several partners, including Disability Rights UK, Plexor, and the Global Disability Innovation Hub to pioneer the development of products and services in and around the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. Each episode, you'll hear from our host, Matt Pieri. Matt founded Sociability, an app which helps disabled people find accessible spaces such as cafes and bars. This app is now available to download. Hi everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Inclusive Innovators podcast. This week, I'm delighted to chat with Marion Marincat from Mumbly. Marion and I have a really interesting conversation about acquired disabilities, how the way in which we describe disability impacts its perception both by disabled people and non-disabled people, and also some of the truths about being a founder of a startup, particularly in the social impact space. Hope you enjoy the conversation and look forward to coming with another episode next week. Well, welcome, Marion Marincat, to the show. Thank you very much for being on this episode of the Inclusive Innovators podcast. It's a real pleasure to chat to you today. Thanks for inviting me, Matt. Uh... It's, it's great to be here. Really excited to be here. Thanks. Awesome. Um, Marion, I was wondering if you might be able just to quickly introduce yourself and what you're currently uh, working on with Mumbly to our listeners. Sure. So um, I'm Marion. I'm the founder of Mumbly. And about nine years ago, I've experienced a sudden hearing reduction. So within six months, um, to put it in layman terms, I lost about 70, 80% of my hearing ability. And that kind of took me from what I was doing at a time, which was renewable energy projects and uh, finance. And I was a trader. It kind of threw me into the healthcare space. And uh, I realized there's a lot missing in the hearing health space in audiology. Um, And then there's a story that I can take you through, but probably we'll do that. Yeah, well, that, that's a great segue. So one, the first thing that we asked every uh, innovator who comes on the podcast is about their innovation inspiration. And it's essentially, you know, what inspired them to get into the, their current role. So yeah, let's, let's jump into it. What, t- take us through the story. Sure. So um, unlike most people who experience hearing reduction, which is about 40 to 60% of the population above the age of 50, I've experienced this at 26. And so before that, I didn't have any hearing issues. Uh, I didn't even care about it, didn't even think about it. So like anyone else, I was raving and I was going out and all of that. But then after I've experienced the, the, you know, the diagnosis of having a hearing loss, how people call it, um, it was quite daunting. It was uh, actually depressing for a couple of years because uh, the language used was very, very rough, uh, you know, disabled, um, you won't be able to hear much in five, 10 years and all these things. And I, I was looking for various options. So I went in about five countries within two years to get my hearing tested. Eventually I had to, uh, give up on finding what's happened and to solve it. And I was, um, prescribed hearing devices, hearing aids. 
Oh, they were the best quality that you can get. And, um, and that was great. But my social life changed because if you wear hearing devices and you go into a restaurant or you're trying to have a chat at a barbecue party, um, it's not the same. It's like you try to have a normal conversation when you're not wearing hearing devices. Uh, imagine you're calling someone from a concert and they answer the phone and they're trying to understand what you're saying from being in the middle of the concert. And it's not really working. So um, that, was, that was the experience. But the other experience was that I, I saw audiology as being catered for uh, senior people, so for the older generation. And not even that was done well, in my view. So as an entrepreneur from when I was probably 16, 17, um, I started moving away from being depressed to seeing an opportunity and to seeing the big picture, the big problem. And the problem was that, you know, uh, so many people with hearing reduction and only one way of catering it, which was very sad, depressing, and so on and so on. So I started the first company in the space uh, called Herology. It was an ear care company. So we opened a clinic in London. And the idea was to come out with this new brand, uh, take it to festivals and take it to the younger generation uh, and bring hearing health to the market. And it, was, it went well. So within three years from 2014, uh, we, um, you know, we opened other clinics in London, but it wasn't solving the big problem, which was, which was our exposure to hearing becomes real only when we have a problem with it. And even then we are not addressing it. So I sold my stake, the company is still going well, um, to five clinics in London and so on, but I sold my stake to my business partners because I wanted to solve the bigger problem, which, uh, which is what we're doing with Mumbly, where we're solving the problem of hearing wellness. We're, we're actually on a mission to allow everybody to be heard, whether you, you recognize yourself as, as having a hearing issue or not, uh, you're still sensitive to sound and you can, you know, uh, you can benefit from hearing wellness like everyone else. Great. That sounds really, I mean, that's a great story. And I think particularly like one of the things that we, we learn a lot about um, from innovators, particularly in the disability space, is that a lot of the time it's the lived experience which promotes, which prompts people to, you know, see a different way to solve a problem. And like you said, then turn that problem into an opportunity. Um, so yeah, really, really cool to, to see how I guess like that journey has already started to evolve. And I think particularly this idea of like improving hearing for everybody rather than just those who have a problem at the start is really interesting. So yeah, can we maybe jump into a little bit more about some of the research that um, I know you've done with Mumbly and, and sort of what makes you know a good hearing environment or a good sound environment? Sure. So uh, we launched the company in 2018 um, and from finding the name, everything was research based uh, and everything was crowdsourced. So um, when we think about sound design um, and when we think about social spaces, we don't realize that visually the design that we're looking at is also having a massive impact of how the place sounds. And it's nothing to do with the music itself and how loud the music is, it's to do with the materials in a space. And what materials you choose to uh, use in, in 
public spaces like restaurants, bars, um, you know, um, other public spaces like museums and so on, has an impact on the quality of sound in that space. Now, this is a problem that everyone talks about, and it's, um, it's quite big in the sense that it's a complex space to talk about sound, to understand, you know, uh, language like reverberation time and uh, acoustic capacity and so on and so on. So the research that um, we started in 2018 was around, well, how do we change and how do we bring hearing wellness mainstream? How do we talk about it before there's a problem? And we started looking at ways to address this through language. So we did, we spoke to more than 500 people face-to-face since 2018, from musicians to music producers, uh, audiologists, hearing therapists, hearing psychologists, um, engineers, etc., etc. And it's remarkable when you start linking everyone's point of view from these industries, like hearing technology or uh, in-ear computers, as they called hearables, with acoustic design and designing spaces and also hearing health. So uh, we, we realized that more than 60% of the population has decreased sound tolerance, which means that some of us have more emotional reactions to certain sounds than others. But some people are bluntly just refusing to socialize or go in public spaces because, because of background noise. So then we started looking at that issue. And um, as of January this year, we started measuring the experience of sound in, uh, in shortage. So we looked at, we measured 88 venues, to be precise, uh, their experience of sound uh, over uh, five minutes. And so we had surveyors going around in each restaurant uh, with, our, with our app. And we measured the decibel levels. We also looked at the capacity of the venue, the materials, the volume, and so on. And we found that only, only 25 of the 80 venues uh, actually had decent materials that would allow you to have a conversation up to about 50% of their capacity of holding people in the space. So in other words, to go to a restaurant above a certain number of people, you are, you are going to experience a low quality of conversation because of the, the space and how it's designed. Right? So we wanted to translate that into something more easy to grasp. So we came up with this intuitive aura where it's kind of a colored shape based on different data points that we looked at. Uh, and at the same time, we're building people's hearing personality to understand their preference for sound and how they want to go out and experience sound. So basically matching people's preference for atmosphere with venues and how they can provide the uh, atmosphere that people want. Cool. That sounds really interesting. So in the terms of, say, like the hearing personalities, that that's based upon the person's, you know, I guess, ear themselves, right? Their, or their physiological sort of makeup? Well, uh, it's a good question because, um, you know, most of the hearing tests that are happening in audiology are based on the physical uh, function of the ear. Um, and there's a, there's a test called the pure tone uh, audiometry test, which is basically testing if you can hear a tone in your ear. Uh, and I'm not going to go into that, but 
what we wanted to do was to see how people's experience of sound is from their own point of view without looking at the hearing health. Just like how, what's your preference for sounds? Do we, after um, a lot of research and iterations, we came up with a set of questions that if you answer these questions, we, we can tell you how sensitive you are to sound and what that means. And we can also link your preference to what type of venues you prefer over others. Um, and we can also, um, in, in the next few months, we want to have a, like a music preference personality questionnaire. And then we can link all these together and we can tell you where you're more likely to want to go out. Uh, we can tell you what sort of music you prefer on a Friday and what other type of music you prefer on a Tuesday if you want to be in a relaxed place. Um, and we can also link you up to what sort of eerie technology you need. So if you're 22 and you just want to buy the latest hearables, uh, we can tell you that based on your hearing personality. If you're 60 and you experience some mild hearing uh, reduction, which is normal with age, then this is what you can do. You know, these are the spaces that are best for you. And it's, it's not about, you know, being disabled necessarily. So we're trying to bring this uh, to the mainstream uh, population by not talking about a problem, but actually improving the way we hear the world and, you know, improving the way we communicate in public spaces um, and, and talking about hearing before there's a problem with it. Yeah, great. And tell us a little bit about the auras that you mentioned. So as a means to better understand the, I guess, you know, the capacity of a, of a place to be to be um, conducive to conversations and good experiences and sound. Sure. So if, uh, if we think about sound, it's very fluid. It changes. And uh, we, I suppose we prefer a certain type of vibe on a, on a Tuesday, like I said, but a very different type of vibe on a Saturday if we want to go out. So if we, if we look at that, then we can't say that a venue has a certain type of sound because it changes or that a venue provides a certain type of atmosphere, maybe 70% of the cases, but the aura would allow us to show uh, an image of the space that is uh, changing. It's three dimensional and it, it's fluid. It changes based on the live data feed from the space. And it shows you through colors and shapes how, um, I suppose sharp the sound in that venue is or what the atmosphere is like. And so in order to do that, in order to have a live data feed, we're building uh, IoT devices and we're installing IoT devices in public spaces with the um, intention to provide a certified for sound solution. So a certification for sound that is not a past or fail approach. It's more like a rating system. And it's not to put public spaces on the spot and say, you know, pointing fingers. It's more to help venues as well as people to kind of bring the level of atmosphere that they want. So we're going to do that through, a, through an aura uh, for spaces. And similarly for people, there's going to be a hearing aura based on the hearing personality and their preference for sound and so on. And then we're just going to match people with public spaces. We're going to match people with different type of experts or hearing wellness providers. Um, yeah, so. Okay, the idea is that they have the Mumbly app and so they could look around them and find places with auras that were suitable to, to their personality or how, when you say match them, as in how, how do you get the, that kind of information to the user? 
Yeah, so the, the, at the moment you can build your hearing personality uh, on the website and that's going to be translated into the app. And yes, the, the intention is to kind of have this ability for you to match with venues based on your hearing personality. Uh, but we're also thinking about third-party integration with other uh, service providers. So say, for example, TripAdvisor or, or um, other search and discovery apps where you can actually attach to the venue's profile uh, uh, this idea of live data feed and the atmosphere and how that would be um, you know, translated into meaning, if that makes sense. Awesome, yeah. And I guess tell us a little bit more about Mumbly and the team and you know, what stage you guys are at. It sounds like you're doing a lot of stuff. Uh, I imagine there's uh, other people involved or unless, unless you're a very, very busy man at the moment. Yeah, no, it's just me. Uh, no, I'm joking. It's, um, well, it's, it's been an interesting journey because I'm very keen on the company culture as much as I am on solving the problem that we're solving. Um, and so because I was, you know, when you start a company, you're thinking, well, um, you're thinking about the product maybe, or you're thinking about whatever you, whatever the reason is why you started the company. But then soon after you realize that actually you're building it with a, with people, so with a team, uh, you can't do it. And the sooner you realize that, the, the sooner you kind of grow this ecosystem around you. So we're now about, I don't know, I suppose 30 something people, but not, don't imagine everyone being full time at their desk in a big office. It's more like doing stuff remotely from before uh, March. And uh, recently we're growing our data team uh, working with four universities in the UK where we're kind of taking graduate programs in. Um, our first employee was a full-time uh, UX researcher and designer. So uh, was now morphing into a product designer, but we didn't want to build stuff before we understood what people want and what people need. So we were <laughs> going for the problem. So now we're, we're building an in-house technical team. We have a data team. Um, we're looking at recruiting uh, some software engineers uh, in the next few months. And um, we're, we've been quite lucky because everyone who's joined Mumbly hasn't joined it because of how much they were getting paid because the company was self-funded by me until, uh, until recently. And so, Everyone was passionate about the idea of, oh, hearing wells. Wow, yeah, yeah, I'd love to go to public venues and kind of have this. So what can I do to help? And that was kind of the approach. And of course, everyone is getting paid to some extent, but now we're building this uh, culture where everyone can come work for as long as they want. We, we kind of put contracts together based on people's preference uh, of their, I suppose, um, time that they can allocate. Or we're getting full-time um, employees where they really want to be part of the team and just do mumbling. Um, we have a team of advisors. We're working with uh, universities, as I mentioned, but also um, uh, we want to link to local authorities as well and get the support that we need to actually bring this mainstream. Yeah, I mean, well, that sounds great. I think one of the things that you know we, we often find with innovators is that they have an idea, they have a, a you know a problem that they want to solve, but then the practicalities of how to build that into something, into a reality, and, and to make it something in the world is often much more difficult. And um, I guess you know my, my follow up question, but you, you sort of touched on it, was how you started that, um, and particularly like you know 
where you're able to find funding and the kind of initial support to sort of get the ball rolling. But it sounds like, you know, you, you were fortunate to be able to sort of self-fund that for a little bit until it was, uh, you know, it's a kind of sufficiently real <laughs> prospect. And then I imagine, um, you know, we're able to attract some sort of funding elsewhere or build upon that. Well, it's a very good uh, point and it's something uh, that I don't think people talk a lot about. Um, like, you know, it's all glamour around being a founder. It sounds like it's so exciting and so on, but it's sometimes so draining and so lonely and so on and so on. Um, so I, you know, with, when you have an 80, 90% now hearing reduction, like I do, what, what happens is even if I have the best technology in the world in my ears, conversation is tough. So as soon as I'm in a meeting and there are three, four people, two people talk at the same time, I'm lost. And so the reason I'm mentioning this, because whilst I was building Mumbly to solve a problem that I would be impacted by on a daily basis, so going to social spaces, trying to try connect to people and so on, while I was going through that, I realized that I can't build it if I don't sustain it, if I don't sustain myself. So then I took a consultancy job uh, in, a, in another company, also very interesting, uh, measuring how people move in, in hospitals and kind of improving waiting times and things like that. Um, and, and soon after I joined as a consultant and became a, a partner, but that's what helped me fund, not the business, but sustain myself to be able to dedicate 70% of my time to Mumbly. Um, and then we had some cash investment, which was very helpful, but what we managed to do, um, and this is how we kind of grew the team somehow, we managed to sort out equity or value, uh, deals. So we've developed our app and our API, uh, with, with an agency that they were happy to take shares instead of being paid in cash. Um, we were able to do a deal on, on our branding, uh, similar to that, and all sorts of other deals with people that would give their time in exchange for equity. And this gives you, as a founder, this gives you a lot of confidence that actually people believe in what you're doing. Um, so, um, yeah, but it, it wasn't something that anyone told me how to do it. It was more like, a, uh, how do I solve the problem? It was such a such a close relationship to the problem I'm solving and it's probably that's why I'm coming up with solutions uh, whatever it takes sort of solutions to to make it you know to make it happen to sort it yeah thanks for sharing that I think that's really important I think a lot of people you know um, like you said it's very glamorized particularly the idea of like venture capital and the idea is you come up with an idea pitch it to a firm they give you a million dollars and all of a sudden everything's fine and i think the reality of that is such you know it's such a silicon valley story it's really important i think to hear about all the different ways that people bootstrap stuff from the start whether it's like you said you know working another job but using your um spare time to solve something and then getting people to 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 kind of come in for for sweat equity or finding different ways to kind of, you know, whether it's getting grants or things like that. I think it's important that people realize it's, it is like trial and error and it's sort of just literally um, hustling and cobbling together things until you get to that point where, you know, you have something a bit more robust to, to either start selling or, or get people to invest in. 
Um, so thanks for sharing that. Yeah, no problem. Absolutely. It's, um, what, one point I would add to that is that, you know, when you go for early stage funding, so all this idea of, you know, the government offering schemes in the UK, SEIS and EIS and so on, to incentivize mm -hmm. to invest in early stage, high risk startups. Um, when you pitch your company, it's all about the bottom line. It's all about profit. It's like, mm -hmm. how are you going to make money? When are you going to make money? How much money are you going to make? You know, all of that. And when you're solving a problem, is a very different way of looking at that, right? So I have a background in finance, I have a degree in finance, so I understand revenue, I understand the need for it. But when we're solving big problems, uh, you might make money in the first year, but if it's a really big problem, you might not make money for a year or two or three. So then how do you get to that? And um, I didn't, you know, I didn't chase uh, investment because I knew it's going to be a waste of time. So I was focusing on delivering and, and all of that it was focused. But uh, we, we had an exercise around getting funding and it was, um, it was uh, disheartening because the, the pushback was, mm. you know, always uh, this idea of, of making money. So it's, it's probably something that with um, the LES program, um, and probably us talking here today, we, we might be able to change for future entrepreneurs that are keen to solve big problems. Yeah, definitely. I think that's definitely one common theme in speaking to founders, uh, you know, on the podcast that for businesses that sit in this, you know, impact focus, you know, they're for profit, but they have a purpose and that's actually the primary sort of driver. Um, it is very hard to, because it falls in the gap between, you know, non-profits and charities and, you know, purely for-profit ventures that, that just want to make money uh, to, and maximize those returns. And I think there's a huge, definitely huge gap in terms of um, funding that is more patient and that's also happy to accept that, you know, the revenue streams are linked more to sustainability and sort of driving the scale of impact rather than just generating maximum, you know, return and, and the bottom line for, for an investor in a financial sense. Um, and I think definitely there's a there's a need for greater awareness around this, and I think also kind of piercing through the sort of trendiness of impact investing and actually critiquing what does that mean and what are the trade-offs that people are happy to make um, in terms of getting social impact versus economic returns and and who those sources of capital are. So hopefully, I think definitely like things like the um, you know East London Inclusive Enterprise Zone and the partners that are formed there um, bring a bit more legitimacy to a space that has probably um, for a long time kind of fallen in, in the gap between you know purely for-profit and the purely non-for-profit areas. Um, and hopefully it's a way also to start incentivizing more people to move into this space and to create businesses that actually do positive um, you know, impact because they know they'll be able to, to sort of get support rather than sort of having, like you said, to be that sole founder or the you know, co-founders who are struggling all the time to, <laughs> to make everything um, uh, happen because there is a lack of support out there. Um, but yeah, so fingers crossed, but hopefully, I think it is starting to shift and hopefully, you know, we can sort of drive that conversation forward. Um, well, thanks for telling us uh, a lot about Mumbly there. I think it's really interesting and, and, you know, it's got a huge scope for impact. And I think this general understanding also of designing spaces that are, are more inclusive in different ways is also really important and getting a sense of, you know, how we make spaces welcoming and, and, you know, accessible to people 
uh, outside of the kind of, you know, the dominant thinking that's already been around today. So I'd like to kind of explore that a little bit more. And I guess, um, you know, I read that in some of the research you did and particularly your own experience at the start of your hearing loss, you know, being a young person with hearing loss wasn't the, the norm. And also then engaging with other young people around hearing loss, you know, was kind of pretty foreign to them. I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that experience and, and I guess what you learnt around some of the stereotypes and the, you know, conceptions or misconceptions around hearing loss and, and, and age. Sure. Um, first of all, what I found out later is that our hearing changes from the age of nine. And as we grow older, we just experience a reduced hearing ability across different frequencies. But no one is telling us this. <laughs> like we, we figured it out and when we have a problem, we realize it. But the most important thing to know is that uh, untreated hearing reduction leads to dementia and Alzheimer's. It's one of the biggest causes of, of dementia and it leads to cognitive decline. Right. right. So um, that said, I, I didn't get there because I've experienced my reduction within six months. And all of a sudden, I showed up with hearing devices. And, uh, you know, uh, what goes on in someone's mind is a lot more than what is actually happening in reality. So, in other words, I thought I look terrible with hearing devices in my ears. I thought that someone actually cares about that. Uh, and I thought that because I can't hear people, it's my fault. So I avoided, for a long time, I avoided social situations because I didn't want to tell people that I have a, a, a hearing reduction. So I, and then every time you, uh, you tell someone you have a hearing reduction, because it's an invisible factor, you have to explain a bit more what that means. Because it's not like with glasses. You don't see, you put glasses on, you see. With, with hearing very different very different different situations i can hear you uh in other situations i can't understand what you're saying and you won't be able to understand that so the experience like i mentioned at the beginning of our conversation was quite daunting and uh, you know audiologists at the time weren't giving me all the tools i needed to navigate this change so uh, what an audiologist basically does checks your hearing, okay, you can't hear well, here are some hearing aids, good luck. And, and the way it works, you, you come out with the hearing aids, the real world, and, uh, and your brain gets this information overload. Um, but no one tells you how to navigate that with like socially. Um, so yeah, it was, quite, it was quite, a, quite a thing. But I think, you know, looking back, um, apart from those two, three years of being totally depressed and not knowing how to deal with it, I'm actually quite glad uh, this has happened to me, weirdly, because there's, I, I haven't come across anyone to solve this problem yet. Like, and I'm talking, I've been looking for other companies that are solving this problem, um, and there aren't. And so I guess someone has to do it, and I'm, I'm happy to you know, take on that ambition and uh and and people seem to be quite responsive to it so so from being you know the experience at the beginning of being pressed now it's actually quite inspiring for people to um to hear that 
you know, they have a problem with their hearing, but they're not talking about it. But all of a sudden, it's safe to talk about it. And, and I see a lot of people coming saying, you know, I have my, my left ear doesn't really work, or I have tinnitus, you know, I can hear this ringing, or, uh, yeah, I always thought there's a problem with the spec, but actually was, so it's really interesting how people from all walks of life, ages, and even 20 year olds, uh, you know, 80% of people that we're talking to are telling us that they avoid public spaces because of noise, or they're telling us, yeah, hearing, haven't really thought about it. Uh, and then they become aware of it, and that's it. There's a change, there's a shift in how people talk about hearing once they're aware of it. So, yeah, it's been quite, quite an interesting journey, but uh, definitely a positive one after a while, I have to say. Yeah, great. And I guess, you know, to kind of go, I think that's a really important journey, like you mentioned, of the, the evolution in even in your, your own head about your you know, hearing condition and how, how that interacts with your identity and also other people. Um, if we can start at the start a little bit, I would, I'm keen to hear your thoughts on what you think caused, you know, that depression and also where you think some of the stigma, you know, that, that I, I'm hearing that um, you face comes from. Yeah, the stigma, I think, comes from how people talk about different ways of being physically. So I, I know it sounds a bit <laughs> philosophical, but actually... What does the word disable mean? What does it mean? If the word disable, the, when we use it and the way we use it, is attached to something negative, someone who's not able. They're not able, so they're, you're disabled. But actually, I'm functioning pretty well, I think. And I'm actually, I don't feel disabled because, I, of course, I can't hear. And if I'm taking my hearing devices out, I can't hear you. But is that a disability or is it just, you know, my hearing is different. So I need to wear these devices. That's it. Then there's the words hearing loss. And then there's the hearing aid, which is designed, you know, beige and it's really big. And no one understands what it is. And we used to laugh at our grandparents when they were whistling and all of that. Right. So I think there's a fundamental issue with the narrative that we use when it comes to certain physical conditions, especially the invisible ones. So it doesn't matter if you're in a wheelchair, if you're a whatever, if you're able to speak and if you're not able to speak, but you're able to be there and exist, then there should be other words. I don't know, I'm not saying what words should be, but I think that's where stigma comes from. It's this the differentiation between unable people and a disabled people. And then all of a sudden there's this gap. And so I had various conversations with audiologists when they were telling me, look, you're disabled and you just need to face the facts uh, and you know you have to be careful with your hearing aids. Oh, that's so, that must be really tough. And that doesn't help. Doesn't help me living well, and it doesn't help anyone around me with, with who doesn't understand the problem. So a lot of the stuff in Mumbly is is also around narrative. It's like, look, let's just stop talking about the problem and start talking about, you know, uh, a better world in that space. So we're talking about hearing wellness. We're not talking about right people with hearing loss can't go in public spaces because it's too loud. That's not gonna solve the problem. That's, that's gonna talk about it, you know? Um, 
one of the interesting things, I don't, I don't know how many people know this, but the potato pillar, everyone is using it. It was, it was invented for people with arthritis and, and uh, dexterity problems. Right? It's like uh, um, uh, kind of coming up with solutions to, to problems that everyone can benefit from that solution. I think that's where it's, I don't know, I, I suppose the stigma comes from the way we talk about things. Yeah. Um, and the way we use language. I think that's I think that's a really great insight. I mean, one of the things that you know we talk a lot about at sociability is is similarly this idea of you know accessibility is for everybody, and I think this idea that you know um, this medicalization of of people's conditions or impairments um, or their disabilities as like something to be cured or something to be fixed, but also more you know more importantly and more impactfully something is negative and therefore something that you know needs to be rid of. I think is really problematic and this idea that people actually just have a spectrum you know some people have better or worse different things but actually it's the environment that we build which often then puts hard stops on those things right if if the environment is built one way then that spectrum is is you know more or less advantageous to someone i think we forget that we build these environments in particular ways they weren't we didn't inherit all these buildings, you know, we didn't, this, this environment just didn't exist kind of separate to people. People built it and therefore people can change it. And I think, you know, we, we spend much more of our time focused on how we can change disabled people's bodies instead of thinking about actually um, everybody's bodies, you know, is going to be different and on, on a spectrum. We should maybe just make the spaces to be much more welcoming and supportive of that. Um, and I think that fundamental shift, you know, this social model of disability is something that the average person who, who doesn't, say like have a condition that they interact with or you know doesn't have someone in their lives that they you know kind of experience it through um doesn't really have an appreciation of and i think that lack of conversation around it and that sort of mainstreaming of that narrative creates a lot of this stigma and a lot of these issues that within people who who do face these and like you know in your example um of, of having you know full hearing and then at some point it changing um, and myself in a similar sense, you know, not being a wheelchair user, having an accident and now using a wheelchair, I think definitely that idea that, you know, for those circumstances where you go from one to the other, it's a very stark, you know, introduction to it. And um, if there was, I think, a lot more conversation around this before, you know, and just in the general um, kind of mainstream media and culture and arts, uh, we wouldn't have these very, like, clear markers of you are now in a new world that you never heard of before and never interacted with and, and none of these terms you know had any meaning to you before um so i think definitely it's important that we start to um i, I really like the approach that you guys are taking if you know we're talking about hearing wellness and actually it's relevant to everybody not just those who have come into a situation where you know now they have a problem because the environments around them don't interact well with their their conditions or their impairments um, or their body um, so yeah, so thanks for sharing that. I think that's a really important thing for particularly, you know, non-disabled people to really start to think about that. Um, everybody in some sense has things that they're better or worse at, you know, and like you said, glasses kind of seem to, for most people, fall off the spectrum of disability. They're just a thing that people have, but it's fine. It, it used to be different with glasses as well. It became a fashion accessory after the 80s, but before that, you know, and even when I was a kid, I remember, you know, these four eyes and uh, all sorts of name, uh, 
because that's where you can see uh, you can see some of the stigma in in how kids talk about certain things right or how we talk about we used to talk about it when we were kids and that comes from allowing that to happen it's not normal but yeah i suppose it's how we design spaces from the get-go it's like how do we think about designing spaces do we think about it from a an efficiency bottom line profitability low cost point of view or do we think well let's design a, an inclusive space let's design cities based on everyone's sort of uh, physical or mental or psychological ability and i i think we're heading that way but it's not it's not really ingrained in the way we take decisions yet and the way you know investments are being made so then this language is allowed to kind of float there because it's it's not addressed head, head, head on. And I think also your point about like, you know, the peeler, um, and there's a whole bunch of things that were invented for disabled people because of their different, you know, modes of functioning that then everybody today benefits from, you know, from the telephone um, to the smartphone, touchscreen, a whole bunch of things that just no one knows about. And I think this is, again, one of these important points of like actually the narrative around you know, innovation, particularly in, you know, the disability space, but also the more generally just designing for people who are on the margins. Um, the benefit that has for everybody is not spoken about. We, we talk about, you know, people who are on the margins as, as irrelevant or as, you know, as, as like uh, segmented, you know, and it only impacts them and they have their own problems, but it doesn't impact everybody else. And I think this, this um, is a huge missed opportunity that if we can start designing for a broader spectrum of people, everybody benefits rather than just um, the way in which things are designed now, which is for a, a kind of, you know, mainstream central center of people and exclude so many others. So I think that's definitely also an important um, shift that we have to think about in terms of how we think about what good design is and what good innovation is and, and how we, you know, conceptualize that. Um, and I guess like you sort of mentioned this, but I'd be keen to hear your thoughts on, you know, um, particularly being the founder of an impact focused company, sort of, you know, what, weight and i don't want to, you don't have to put a percentage to it but what weight you kind of think um goes towards you know actually doing things and producing products and that kind of stuff but also education and actually raising awareness and like you know bringing light to an issue um but then also try uh, you know as a necessary step of solving it yeah it's uh it's good you know education awareness um i think are coming from uh action and actually uh, by way of example. And so when it comes to behavioral design in, in solving big social problems, um, I've learned a lot of the last few years um, about that. So what, what we tended to do, we linked to universities very early on. And uh, interestingly, we were, pushed to work with universities because we were able to get interns to help us with certain areas of the business, so PR or computer science or data science and so on. Um, but we soon realized that education comes from people being involved in real life situations. So all these, you know, I don't know when you finished your school, but when you come out of school, whether it's college, whether it's university or masters, you come up from a theory-based learning into, right, now I need to get a job. 
right? So they're very separated. And so um, the idea of bringing this change and stigma and kind of, uh, yeah, let's talk about education, let's talk about awareness around, you know, accessibility or mobility and so on and so on. Of course, it's important. But, but I think involving people in solving these problems makes them understand the problems more and deeper rather than, okay, let me talk to you for an hour about people with hearing loss. I mean, or, you know, people living in a wheelchair. I mean, it's, and, you know, I have a hearing issue, but I think it's boring to just say that. Let, let me tell you for an hour how people with hearing loss suffer. It's, come on, I, who wants to hear that? But let me tell you something interesting about hearing. Like, let me tell you that, you know, um, you know the, the, the food you choose and the way you crunch food has an impact on the taste that you feel. Or let me tell you that, uh, for example, uh, the, the potato chips, the crisps are made to crunch because they are uh, giving to the brain a better impact on how you taste that and it kind of has an impact from sound, right? So you can talk about it in a different way without talking about it. And I think, um, again, I, I suppose it goes back to language, but it also goes back to practicality. So can you involve young people, talented people into solving a problem without just preaching about the problem? Um, and that comes from, you know, um, sociability, uh, LES, Mumbly, other companies that are solving uh, problems or, uh, for people with disabilities, it comes from, well, let's link to universities, let's link to other companies, and let's start involving people into helping us solving these problems. And then you, know, you, can, you can pay them like you pay everyone else, but it's the intention of getting into education from a different point of view, I believe. Yeah, I think that's a really great perspective. And I think this, this is also an important point of just like, sometimes you need to actually create the change and rather than sort of, you know, talking about and educating and hoping that someone else will do it because they now see differently. You have to actually do it yourself. And I think, like you said, lead by example is a really important part of, of innovating in this space um, and innovating generally, I think. Um, and that's a really nice segue into the last part, um, Marion, of our uh, conversation. We often ask everybody these two questions. One is around the innovation inspiration, but the second is around, I guess, your innovation imagination. And so the idea is, you know, you today at 2020, where do you see Mumbly in 10 years time? Where do you hope that, you know, this innovation you've started ends up? Um, ooh, questions like that are very good. Yeah, it's like uh, teasing the vision. Um, well, I, I think the way innovation and technology evolves, um, there's a gap between developing incredible innovation in tech and people implementing it in their daily lives. Of course, we have, you know, the smartphone and all sorts of obvious things that are implemented in our daily lives, but there are others that are not. But slowly we're seeing that we're going into this connectivity world. We're connected to our phones, we're soon going to be, um, people started having stuff in their ears in the last five, six years because Apple launched the AirPod. 
So um, we're seeing that uptake uh, of, of being connected um, audio and, and visually, and soon there'll be an eyeglass. So I think in 10 years, I'd like us to be recognized for bringing hearing wellness to the masses in a really, really cool way. Uh, through innovation, through having fun, through uh, not missing out on anything. Um, so, you know, basically totally transform the way we, we interact with hearing and sound. Um, and in 10 years time to look back and, and, and remember how it was stigmatized uh, and how poorly it was addressed. Yeah, great. I think that's a... Um... Uh, a really exciting vision, which hopefully in 10 years' time, we can look back on this and say, yeah, it happened in, in five. Um, and as a final question, I guess, what would you say to, you know, Marion 2.0, who is at a similar stage as, as you, you know, um, back in 2011, uh, they've gone through something, they've experienced something new, they've got a new, new perspective on life, they've seen a problem and opportunity, and they're, they're thinking, what should I do about it? What would you say to that person, you know, today? Um, at the start of that journey from, from, I guess, what you've learned over the last few years? Don't worry, it's going to be fine. <laughs> yeah, uh, there was a lot of worry uh, for, for a few years. And uh, I would, yeah, that's what I would do. Like, don't worry, it's going to be fine. We adapt. Uh, we adapt to all sorts of new changes, but we don't know it when it happens. We realize it later. So, um, yeah. Great. I think that's awesome. That's a lovely note to end on. Um, so, Marion, Marion Cat, thank you very much for your time. It's been great to chat. Um, wish you all the best with Mumbling. Look forward to seeing it become, you know, the cool, trendy new thing in, in the hearing space uh, with great speed. So, thanks so much for your time. Um, keep up the important work um, and look forward to having you, you know, in the Elise. Uh, area and, and potentially back on the show sometime soon thanks thanks a lot matt uh, it's been a pleasure uh, really good questions and I'm, I'm glad we had this chat thanks for listening to the inclusive innovators podcast next week we're joined by victoria austin from the global disability innovation hub do you want to take part in the elise program or be part of our community to find out more visit www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash enterprise forward slash Elise, or give us a follow on Twitter at Elise2020. You can find out more about our virtual and physical workshops on social media, funding, app development, and a masterclass on accessible comms. Captioning will be available for each session. We'd also like to thank our Elise partners, including Barclays Eagle Labs, Capital Enterprise, Disability Rights UK, Global Disability Innovation Hub, Hackney Council, Here East, Greater London Authority, Inclusion London, London Legacy Development Corporation, Loughborough University London, Plexor, London College of Fashion and UCL. This podcast is powered by Sociability.